please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 15, where the Lord reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. I think I've shared this before in some context, but in my theology, one of my theology classes in seminary, Dr. James Mook was teaching on the subject of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And one of the things he said when he introduced this this doctrine was he said, by the end of this time of Christology that we discuss, I want your Christ to be bigger. I want you to have a bigger Christ. Now, of course, what he's not saying is he's not saying he wants Christ to be inherently bigger. He can't. He's God. He is who he is. But what he was saying, essentially, was that he wants our understanding of this Christ to be bigger. That he wants us to see Christ as he is, the great God, so that we would see him and respond rightly. And in fact, what is our sanctification but God perfecting us in Christ-likeness as we see more of him? That as we see more of the Son in his glory, we are conformed to his likeness by the work of the Spirit. That we want to see, we need to see, we must see a big Christ. A big Christ results in bigger Christ-likeness. And undeniably, one of the most quoted passages in reference to the personhood of Christ is the very passage we just read. That no comparable listing of so many rich characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ and his deity are found in any other passage in Scripture than this one. And in fact, this is what someone wrote. I want you to listen to this. Understanding and embracing Jesus Christ's role as Savior is key to every Christian faith and requires more than having a theoretical belief that he lived and accomplished great things. It requires having confidence that he was indeed resurrected and that he suffered not only to death but also spiritual pain for our sins. Jesus felt the pain, guilt, and suffering we experience as a consequence of wrong choices. More importantly, he accepted responsibility and paid the price for our wrongdoings on earth if we in turn sincerely repent and accept his commandments and divine role as redeemer. When we do so, we are released from our sins. We can be spiritually clean and worthy to enter the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, that quote that I just read to you was on the website of the Latter-day Saints Mormon Church. That there are 
things that we hear in that very quote there that sound good, that sound right. But I don't need to remind you that the Latter-day Church is an apostate church. It's the cult. And yet, of course, they profess to know this very Christ that we just read about. The danger is, is that there are many people, many groups, who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And dare I say, maybe even people in this very room who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, it's not, do you know him? But he would say, do I know you? That an understanding of who Jesus is does not mean that you know him in the saving of your sins. That if we do not understand the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in danger of being led astray. Heresies are born out of misunderstandings. And this is a misunderstanding that comes with eternal consequences. And Paul understood this. This is why he was was writing to the Colossian church, a church heavily influenced by Gnostic teachings that were prevalent in their culture. We've talked about Gnosticism before, but just briefly, they had Gnostic beliefs, beliefs, which essentially taught that the, the concept of, of matter is evil. So anything you touch and see, that that's, it's evil. The matter is evil. And that the spirit is good. And that over time, a series of, of emanations, in other words, things that are being produced, that series of emanations came from God. And over time, these emanations that came from God were more matter and less spiritual. And so now, in this framework... The way to salvation is not by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. But essentially, if you want to be saved in this framework is is you need to tap into an intellectual enlightenment that reaches the spiritual reality of things. So salvation is about the spiritual enlightenment rather than looking at man, Christ Jesus. And so Gnostic thought, Christ was either, he was seen as a phantom that he just appeared to be in a body, or that he was an emanation that united with his body. It was a warped view of Christ. And as detached and foreign that seems to our culture, like who would believe that? It's not really foreign from us. I mean, think of just New Age mysticism. That this is a different mask, the same devil. And I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, but at its core, they're believing a lot of heretical and wrong things about man and the spiritual realm. And so as Paul's writing to the Colossian church, he was encountering people who had false teachings of this Christ. And these false understandings of who Christ is was a matter of life and death. And so what I want us to see here in this passage, we must see a full picture of who Jesus is. That I want us to walk away with a full, complete picture of his glory. That we would behold his glory and respond rightly to this. That we must have a full view of this Christ. This glorious Christ that Paul spent just these short verses just expanding on deep theology that we can take weeks upon weeks to just unpack. But we're going to seek to scratch the surface here. Because in this passage, there are three descriptions of, of Christ's supremacy that demand your exclusive allegiance to him. Three descriptions of Christ's supremacy that demand your exclusive allegiance to him. 
Because the worst thing that can happen is we can see and hear this truth. And many have and many will. They will hear about all of the glories of this Jesus and of Christ and what he has done. They will hear it. They will understand it. They will ascend to it intellectually. And yet, they will end up in hell. Why? Because just because you can know about Jesus does not mean you have known him in the saving of your sins. This is great dangers here. And we have to have a right understanding of this Christ. And I don't want to scare anybody. I merely want to point us to the glory, the source of our salvation, the fountainhead of mercy, the start of all grace, this glorious offer of salvation that this very Christ extends. And for us who have known Christ in the saving of our sins, we should walk away with hopefully a, a bigger view of this Christ that informs our life in every situation, in every context, and that results in greater worship to this Christ. That this is a message for us, that we need to see the descriptions of Christ. Let's look at the first one, that he is supreme over creation. Supreme over creation. This first description comprises the first three verses of the six verses we're looking at. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on that. But I wanted to see how he's supreme over creation. So on this sub point, that he is supreme over creation by his very nature. He's supreme over creation by his very nature. Look what it says in verse 15. That he is the image of the invisible God. That when you see him, when you see Christ, you see God. And scripture is clear because in in spite of this, right, scripture says that God is invisible. Jesus said to the woman at the well that God is what? Spirit. John also also said that that no one has seen God at any time in John 1.18. That God is spirit. But yet here he's saying that he is the image of the invisible God. That Paul here, he's stating that this invisible God is revealed in the person, Jesus Christ. So that he is the, the image. And this word, this term he uses of image is the word in the Greek, the icon, where we get our word icon. But when we think of icon, I think we usually think of an icon as something as like a crafted object. Something that's created. Oh, this is an icon of this. It's created. It's inferior of the original. But that's not what icon means here in the Greek. When he's saying that he is the the image, the icon of the invisible God, he's essentially saying he is the exact representation of the invisible God. That he is the exact likeness of him. It's speaking of his divine nature. That he bears the same essence of God. That he's not a likeness or a copy of God, but he is the image, the exact representation, the exact likeness of God. He's referring to his deity. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 said that, that Christ is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Jesus himself said that if you've seen me, then what? You've seen the Father, John 14 verse 9. So in other words, that Paul is here saying for us that he is the exact likeness, the representation of God, very God. So when you look at him, you see God. And that's why Jesus can say that. And he can't say that Jesus then is, by by implication, then he's the father. No. 
He's not the Holy Spirit. He's not the Father. But in this Godhead, in, the, in this, triune, this triune unity of the Godhead, that there is one God, one essence, one substance, eternally existing in three persons. Go home and chew on that for all day. So when you look at him, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is saying here, he is God, very God, God in flesh. He's dealing with his divine nature. One commentator said that he is the representation and the manifestation of God. And because he is the very image of God, having full divine essence, he is essentially supreme over creation. That because of who he is, he is supreme over all creation. Which is what it says next in verse 15. That he is the firstborn of creation. The firstborn. And we can stop there. Because what does it say, or what does it mean here when Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? Because wait a minute, if he's, if he's God, then is he a created being? What is he talking about? And in fact, this very verse is used by cults to justify that Jesus is not God and that he was created. Because look here, he's firstborn. He's the first one born of all creation. He's great, he's the first one, yes. But is that what Paul is saying here? Is he literally the firstborn of creation? Because if this is true, he cannot be God. And this would conflict with what we just established. But when he's saying here the firstborn, he's not referring to physical birth, but he's referring to his status and his rank and position. That Christ is the great one. He is first, not firstborn, but first in supremacy. And in fact, scriptures support this because even in the Old Testament, this word firstborn is used not in the context of physical birth. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, when God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh, he's supposed to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son. And he says after that, my firstborn. Tell Pharaoh that this is my nation, that they are my firstborn. And of course, Israel was not the first nation because they were subjugated under another nation, Egypt. But he's saying here that this is my special people, that these are my people, my firstborn. And even more, go to Psalm chapter 89. Because in this account, in Psalm chapter 89, we see the same word used again. Speaking of David in verse 20, the psalmist says, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. So he's speaking of David, King David, a man, and he continues going on talking about David. And then in verse 25, it says, I shall also set his hand on the sea, speaking of what he will give to him, and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And look what he says in verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, we're looking at this. We know David was not the firstborn. In fact, he was the youngest. And yet the psalmist here is saying, I'm going to make David my firstborn. And it's the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, the same word of firstborn is used in our passage in Colossians chapter 1. 
that this is the firstborn. So it's used in, in re- reference to his rank, his superiority, that Christ is the firstborn in the sense that he is supreme. He is the highest of highest. He is worthy of all praise and glory. He is the highest over all creation. And this is even supported not only in just the terminology of the word he uses, but also in the context of the passage. Because in verse 17, it says he is before all things. It says he is the head of the church, we'll see. It says he is the the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead. And it says in verse 18, so that he will have first place in everything. That the context itself supports the idea that he's speaking of Christ's superiority in his essence. That he is great. Because if he was literally the firstborn of all creation, this could not be true if he created all things, it says. How can he be the firstborn of all creation if he created all things? How's he, gonna, he can't create himself in that sense. It does not make sense. The context supports it clearly that he's speaking of Christ's majestic superiority. That everything was created by him. And because he was, and not because he was born first, but because he is God who's supreme over it. So second here in this subpoint that he is supreme over creation by his role in creating it. So now he's moving to now his role in creation. In verse 16 it says that for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That this Christ was there in creation. That he was there before all things were created and he was there creating all things. That everything came to existence through him. And not only did he create, but everything, it says, was created at the end of verse 16. What does it say? Everything was created through him, but even more, it was created what? For him. Again, hinting at supremacy. That everything that was created was created for him. Which really humbles us in perspective, because if you are a created thing, which all of us are, and everything is, why was it created at the end of the day? For him, for his benefit, for his glory. That everything was made for his benefit, for his glory. That our purpose here on earth is nothing more, nothing less than to glorify Christ. That the reason all things were created was for his glory. So, why do you exist? Why do you have breath in your lungs? To glorify Christ. Why do you give up, get up every morning? Glorify Christ. Why do you work every day? Glorify Christ. Why do you even want to rest every day because you know you need to? Glorify Christ. Why is it that you want to lead your family? To glorify Christ. What is your objective when you walk into the work doors? To glorify Christ. What is your objective while you're rocking that baby? Glorify Christ. What is your objective every time you want to open the keys to that car? Glorify Christ. Why are you here? Glorify Christ. All things were made for him, for his benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, that there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we exist through him. Your job description is through him and for him. It's not contingent upon your, pro, uh, upon your response. So I don't care if someone sees this or hears this and doesn't believe it. It doesn't matter. 
It's not contingent upon whether or not you ascend to that truth. That he, everything was created for him. And he will be glorified no matter what. That he will be glorified in his salvation of all things, or he's going to be glorified in his judgment of those things. That God will be glorified. And because he is creator, that all are accountable to him. And what is the extent of this creation? What is the extent of his creation? What has he created? It's clear in the text, it says, all things. The things in heavens, he says, and things on the earth, visible and invisible. It's interesting that Paul makes this note here to describe what we kind of know to be obvious. Of course, he says all things. Is it redundant now just to say invisible, visible, dominions, rulers, thrones, authorities? He's essentially getting to the fact that everything, no matter what it is, created by God, whether you can see it or not. Now, especially in this context with Gnosticism pervading, what are some of the things that they couldn't see that they were prone to worship above him? Even angels, right? Look at go over the next chapter, chapter two. In verse eighteen, Paul says, "Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind." That obviously, worship of angels was part of that Gnostic thought because it was a supernatural spiritual being that was higher that they wanted to send to. So don't be led astray into the worship of angels. Why are you going to worship an angel when clearly Christ created that angel? That he created all things, visible and invisible. That whether you see it or whether it's not there, that he created everything and it exists for him. The third subpoint of this, that he is supreme over creation by his power in sustaining it. So not only just by his very nature, not only by creating it, but also he's supreme just by his power in sustaining it. Because it would be enough if he were to create this world and, and just leave it to progress on its own. But he not only creates, as the text says, he also sustains. He sustains it. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him what happens? All things hold together. He's not only created, but the continuous result of that definite act of creation is his ongoing sustaining of it. That he holds all things together. That in his hands, it is together. Physicists generally agree that there are four fundamental uh, forces of nature. Gravity, uh, electromagnetic force, both of these, which I don't think anyone would disagree with. Gravity is pretty obvious. Take an object, drop it, it goes to the floor. Why? Force of gravity. Electromagnetic force, simplest way, like you two, two magnets. What happens when you turn one magnet, right? They either attract or they repulse, right? That's very observable. No one disagrees with that. But even beyond that, for, for I can say thousands of years, no one was able to really describe why is it that the atom, the simplest atom, stays together and does not split and fall apart. Because what happens when an atom splits? It's not good. There's heat. There's explosion. It's not good. But why does the atom stay together, especially in the nucleus when you have positively charged uh, together, positively charged molecules together, why are they not repulsing and splitting? What holds the simplest matter, the atom, together? And physicists could not describe this until really about 100 years ago when they came up with a term that describes what keeps the nucleus and the atom together. 
And they called it a strong force. That's, that's the third fundamental force of gravity, or fundamental force of nature is, is a strong force, and there's weak force. Both strong force and weak forces deal with the stability of a particle and the nucleus of the particle. And so they came up with a strong force. That this strong force holds the nucleus together so that it does not explode. That is why things hold together and stay together. Now, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a scientist. I, I, I don't have a degree in science. But there's one thing that I do know. I know who holds the atom together. I know what keeps that nucleus from falling apart. That it is Christ who is holding all things together. That he sustains and holds all things together by the word of his power. That he is the one that contains it. And so as one person said, he is the one that is the the principle of cohesion. That he is the one who keeps the universe from being a chaos and keeps it together as a cosmos. That Christ is the one who holds all things together, as Hebrews 1.3 says, by the word of his power. And what a blessed relief to know that the one who holds the universe together, he holds the atom together, he holds the molecules, he holds everything together, but even more, he holds you together. That he keeps us intact. What keeps us from running amok into insanity? From all of the trials and the burdens and the pressures of life, what keeps us sane? I don't know about you, but there are many things that happen in life. If you've seen tragedy after tragedy, if you've seen one person go through it, I remember growing up in the church I grew up in, and it was just a blessing to watch the older saints who have been through life. And you just see life worn on them. You see it how they walk and how they talk. And you know what they've been through. But there's one thing that they would say through it all is that God is good. That they understood that God was the one who kept them, who sustained them through the worst of tragedies, through the difficulties, through confusion, that Christ sustained them. And there was one refrain that came from their mouth, God is good. God is good, baby. They'd always say, God is good. But you know that because Christ is the one who is holding all things together. He is the one who keeps us, and he is the one who sustains us. That this Christ is the creator of all things. He created it, but he even sustains it, and he's Lord over it. That this is a Christ who is worthy. He's majestic and powerful. That by his very essence, he is worthy. He is supreme over creation. The second description is he's not only supreme over creation, but he is supreme over the church. And the most humbling truth of this is that he's supreme over his church. And the imagery he uses here, you see in verse 18, is that he is head of the body, the church. Humbling reality of this is this imagery of a head and the body implies in the sense that the head is not complete without the body. The body is not complete without the head. That this unity that God has in Christ and the church is a humbling reality for us that he would be united with sinful people. That he would take us and make us part of his own having cleansed us and washed us by his blood. 
But it says in verse 18, he is head of the body, the church, that the same universal authority, the same supremacy and lordship that is demonstrated in the universe is exercised in the church. And not just over the church, but he's emphasizing the unity because he calls the church his body. Which means that if you're in Christ, then your life and dependency, and most importantly, your full submission is under his reign. That to call Christ the head of the church implies his authority and rightful authority. That because he is head, he directs the body. Think about every action that you make. When you move your arm, when you move your leg, when you speak, why can that even happen? Because your head must direct the body to do what the head wants it to do. That the head directs all things. And so even when you look at the the corporate entity of the church, that what directs the church? Why do we do what we do? Why do we formulate our worship the way that we worship? Because the head has directed us to do so. That when we come together for church, we don't just do church how we want to do church. We don't just come up with what what would feel good, what would stir us to to, to do good and to want to be good and to feel God's presence. What, What should we do to do that? It's not contingent upon what we think, but as the body, we are directed by the head who regulates our worship. That he is worshiped in the way that he has designed it, and he is the one who receives the worship in the way that he has regulated it. That he is the head of the body, the church. And we have to be humbled to realize the mercy that it is for him to unite himself with us. That he would see a sinful body of people and deem us worthy to be saved by his own merit and wash us and cleanse us so that we could stand before him blameless. And so as he is the head, he is worthy still of all worship and glory because he is head. And let's be reminded of why we can enjoy this because look at the remainder of verse 18. It says that he is the beginning, the firstborn, again that term, from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the beginning, it says. In other words, the one with whom a process begins. That he is the firstborn from the dead. Obviously not literally the firstborn, because we can look at Lazarus. We can look at the woman Elijah raised, raised in um, the Old Testament. He's, he's not literally the first one raised. But he is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the one with whom the process starts. Because as Paul described him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, that he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That Christ here is the first fruits from the dead. In other words, he triumphed, triumphed over death. Romans 6, 5 reminds us that if, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly we also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That because he is the firstborn, the greatest, superior from the dead, never to die again, that now we have resurrection because of him. And again, we can ask the question, why is this? Why is this great prestige granted to us? Why is it that he's done this? I, look, I like how the ESV phrases this last phrase here in verse 18. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. That he might be great. So that he might come and have first place in everything. Again, why did Christ do this? It wasn't primarily about you, but it was primarily about him. 
that he did this so that he would have first place preeminence in everything. That Christ would be lifted, Christ will be exalted. That's why Paul says in Philippians that every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of Father. And that every knee will bow, whether on earth or under the earth. Everyone will acknowledge that he is great. That he is going to have first place. And describing the majesty and sovereignty of Christ in the creation and in the church, he describes that the majesty was was physically and fully, fully manifested in his earthly body. Because look how Paul connects the thought next. He says after that in verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, God was pleased to take human form in Jesus, to take human flesh in Jesus, that it pleased the Godhead for him to do this. As we look at the hypostatic union, it's the union of of two natures in one person. Paul later makes the statement in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That you you can't remove that again, that in bodily form, that this is not evil, wicked flesh, as the Gnostics would teach, but he says, no, in bodily form, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. As one person said, that he took on human nature in such a way that his incarnate state, he has two natures that are not, and cannot be mixed, nor can either nature be eliminated. So his person is ever both divine and human, having full divine intellect, emotion and will, and full human intellect, excuse me, uh, having, divine, having divine intellect, emotion and will, and full human intellect, emotion and will and body, but one self-consciousness. That you have the union in this one person, the fullness of the Godhead, truly God, truly man. This is a slap in the face against Gnostic teachings. That this God, he is head over creation. He created all things. He's also the head of the church, which is his body. He's before all things. He's firstborn from the dead. And all the reason is, so he will be first in all things. This is Christ so far. You see here, his supremacy displayed in creation, his supremacy displayed in salvation, excuse me, in in the church. And now we're going to see his supremacy described over salvation. That thirdly, he's supreme over salvation. Supreme over salvation in verse 20. Because in these natures, he rightly satisfies the requirement of both accounts. Being truly God, truly man. He satisfies the requirements on both accounts. In other words, that the eternal wrath of God towards sin and man's dire need of a perfect human substitute to bear the wrath before this holy God. That he is the one who can satisfy both accounts. That he can satisfy the eternal wrath of God towards sin and he can satisfy our need of a perfect human substitute. That this is in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see how this is clearly displayed in verse 20. It says, and through him, because moving beyond that, and through him, what did he do? To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It says that he reconciled. 
This term here is a, a term that's used elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, when Paul is speaking of marriage, and he's saying to be reconciled the spouse to one spouse. But in this passage here, he puts a prefix on that term of reconciliation. In other words, to designate this super reconciliation. He's emphasizing the reconciliation that was done on our part by his work. That he reconciled himself, all things, reconciled to himself all things by the blood of his cross. That the Son reconciled us back to the Father. Because we must be clear here that he reconciled us back to God. Right? He didn't go anywhere. We did. That we went astray, we sinned, that we walked away, we loved ourselves. And what did he do? That he extended mercy and grace and brought us back by his own work in his son. That we were the ones who went astray. But what did he do in his mercy? Like this, this supreme Christ, this one who was God, very God, who created all things and will bring all things to an account, who rightly should condemn us all to hell for a rebellion against his good law? What did he do in his mercy? He extended grace and saved us and reconciled. He brought us back by the blood of the cross. And what did he do when he did that? It says, the text says that he established peace. There's peace now between God and man by the blood of his cross that he established peace. So that all things in heaven or earth are reconciled. That there's this universal aspect to this reconciliation. That if you recall, Romans chapter 8, verse 19 speaks of, of creation even groaning to be redeemed, right? That all creation is suffering from the stains of sin. And this, this act of reconciliation is a universal act. Not that every single person will be reconciled, but it's speaking of not only just man, but creation will be restored because of the perfect work of Christ, of what he has done now to release the curse and the sting of death. By his own blood on the cross. Now he made peace. So that all things, those that are his redeemed, and those who have opposed him, which will be subjugated to him, but the result is ultimate reconciliation. And believer, what we need to be reminded of is what Christ did in making peace for you. You think about how Christ you were an object of God's wrath before Christ. That he abhorred you. He hated you. And what did he do in his mercy? He says, in love, he sent his son to die for you. To give peace. That now this wrath is now peace? Why? Because of what he has done. And this making of peace is not just strictly the removing of sin or guilt. But peace here means that there's a new relationship that you have now with God. That more than just peace itself, that, that look what he gave you. He abundantly blessed you with benefits of being an heir, benefits of being a son. You have continual access to the throne. That there's a union now that you have with Christ. He's given to you the righteousness of his son that every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours. That he has restored that enmity between, enmity between you and God in Christ. 
And when Paul said that I am preached nothing but Christ and Christ crucified, Paul knew he deserved hell. That Paul knew a persecutor of Christ's people that he deserved condemnation forever. But Paul's refrain was Christ and Christ crucified because he realized at the cross he was reconciled. He realized at the cross there was peace. He reconciled at the cross wrath was satisfied. And which means that there is no other way that the wrath of God can be appeased on your account but through the cross. And so where is your peace? Our peace needs to be renewed in what Christ has done. And it goes without saying here that I, we cannot leave this place. Every single soul in this room, on this campus, we must ask our soul, have you had peace with God today? Do you have peace with God? That if you were to step into eternity right now, is the wrath of God abiding over you? Or do you have peace with this Christ? Do you have peace with God? Again, many people know Christ. Many people can repeat that Christ made everything. Many people can say Christ is head over the church. Many people can say Christ is the way to salvation. But many people will not find that way to salvation because they do not know Christ. Do you have this peace with God? If you were to die right now and stand before a holy God, what would be your excuse? What would be your reasoning? Is it anything other than the blood of Christ on the cross that made peace between you and God? Because that is the only reason, the only excuse that is acceptable before this holy God. It's not enough to say, I know Christ, but does Christ know you? And look here, as I said in the beginning, not trying to scare anyone. But if you do feel exposed by your sin and your shame this morning, if you realize you've heard a lot about Christ, you know about Jesus, but you don't have the confidence of this peace between you and God, hear me, this morning, today is the day of salvation for you. That this Christ readily stands to forgive. That this glorious Christ who made all things, whose head over the church is the one who laid down his own life so that you can be saved. That he is not far from you. That you just confess with your mouth that this Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, even more, believer, I really want us to think about what do we do with this rich theology that this Christ who made all things head over the church Lord of salvation what do we do with this rich theology a believer you've been washed and redeemed by these truths you've been saved by this Christ but hear me this is where orthodoxy sound doctrine must meet orthopraxy sound living because as Christians, I think we all would give a hearty amen that Christ is first. Amen? Christ is first. He's great. He is number one. But believer, let's ask, is Christ number one? 
Like, is he number one in my life? Is, is Christ preeminent in my life? We can verbally preach this and, and say Christ is preeminent. He is great. He is glorious. He is wonderful. But now is Christ first and preeminent in my life? If, if someone were to watch a documentary of your life over the past week, if they were to watch that documentary of your life, would the viewer, would the audience see that documentary, and would they be able to tell, you know what, Christ is first in that person's life. Oh, you know what, yeah, they're a sinner. Yeah, they still sin. Yeah, they're a mess. But you know what, you see how they go to Christ constantly, how they are just dependent upon this grace of Christ. You see how they cling to Christ for strength to live in their adversity. You see how they're just clinging and trusting in the promises of this Christ. If someone were to look at your life, can they see, yes, Christ is first, that he is consumed with Christ. She loves Christ. She is not perfect, but let me tell you something. She's continually pointing to Christ. So we can say and give a hearty amen, as we should, to the glorious Christ, but is he first in our life? Are we trusting in our own works? Are we trusting in our own performance? Or are we resting upon his goodness? Are we going to the promises of this Jesus? Are we going to the one who says, come, I've been tempted. I've been tempted on all points, but guess what? I'm without sin. So come to me. Come to me. You you need mercy? I got plenty of it. You need grace, believer? I've got plenty of it. Oh, come. Fear no wrath. I've bore the wrath in your place. Fear nothing. Come to me. I have nothing but grace and mercy for you. I don't care how many times you've transgressed me today. My grace is sufficient. Find me to be your all in all. It's Christ first. Do you treasure his goodness? You treasure his glory. You treasure his mercy. It's Christ first. Because if that's the point of the text, the only implication is Christ first. Is he first? Do we love this Christ? Are you trusting in this Christ today? Are you fully resting in his grace this hour? Is he sufficient for your need this hour? I know many of us came here with weights. Many of us here came this morning with burdens. Many of us here came with stresses, with aches, maybe even joys. Is Christ sufficient for you today? Have you seen this picture of his glory and his greatness? And how does Christ respond and inform the very burden on your back right now? When you see his glory and his greatness, is there any weight too heavy? Is there any temptation too strong? When you see his sufficiency, when we behold this glory of this Christ, this biblical Christ, is there anything in your life that he is not able to hold? Is he first in that? So what do we do with all this? If this is true, remind ourselves, what is the continual offer from this Christ in Scripture? Because the response is now, I need to do better now. Okay, I need, okay I'm going to get it this week. Yep, no more of that. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, yeah, I'm doing this. That is not the response immediately, although we do need to walk in this. But first, believer, behold this glory. Rest in this Christ. See him as he is. In the words of the New Testament, 
deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. In the eyes, in the words of Colossians 3, fix your eyes on him. Set your, your heart upon him. Hebrews chapter 12, fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. In the words of 1 Peter 3, cast, or 1 Peter 5, cast your cares upon this one. Philippians 3.20, eagerly await his return of this glorious Christ, the Savior who was going to come back. In the words of the Lord himself in Matthew 11.28, come to him if you're weary and burdened, heavy laden. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in spirit, and he will give you rest, rest for your souls. Come drink from him. And if that's not good enough, I think Jeremiah would say in chapter 6, verse 16, stand by the ways and see and ask of the ancient past where the good way is. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I think Isaiah would say in chapter 45, verse 22, to turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Sound familiar? I think David might say in Psalm 1611, you know, find the fullness of joy and pledges forevermore at my right hand. Come to me and be satisfied. I think in the words of Psalm 119, verse 37, you might say, turn your eyes from looking at vanity and be revived in his ways. I think 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 19, again, speaking of David to Solomon, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. I think Moses might say, drink from this well, drink from this rock, and find your fulfillment in him. In other words, come to this Christ, this sufficient Christ, and drink from him, delight in him, realize who he is in his glory and his splendor, this great judge, this great ruler, but also this great savior, and even more, this great sustainer, and find your all in all in this Christ. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is worthy of all praise and honor and worship and you can delight in him and drink from him and he will never run dry. He must be first. Because our present danger, I don't think, is Gnosticism. In the church, mostly in the church today, I don't think our present danger is Gnosticism or even New Age spiritual mysticism. But I think the danger is having a clear Christology with an inconsistent life. I think the danger is, in the words that Jesus said to the Ephesian church, is leaving the first love. That knowing who Christ is, having so much doctrine, so many rich theologians in our history, knowing so much about biblical doctrine, and yet that doctrine only stays up here, and we don't have a love for him in here. That we know about this Christ But yet, it's almost like, with the familiarity, breeds contempt in a sense. Like when the, the, I'm picking on old folks today, but when old folks say, like, you know, back in my day, you know, we used to have to do this in order to do that, right? And for us, we're thinking like, well, okay, who cares? We we can do this now, right? 
Like, we don't appreciate just the fundamental blessings and the glories of just the simple. That the simple truths, we just see them and we acknowledge them and we give credence to them, but it no longer has an effect upon us anymore. That we can know all of this Christology and we can refute the, 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 the cult church down the street and we can go head to toe with them and just crush their argument, but we have no love for this Christ. That there's no joy. There's no delight. And that's a grave danger for us to not only see this Christ, but loving this Christ that becomes so familiar that it no longer moves us. And I must cry out, Lord, by your spirit, soften this cold heart. I, I know who you are, but I don't feel it. But Lord, help me not live on my feelings, but live by faith that you give to me that I must ask the Spirit to revive me again, to see Christ fresh, to see him anew, and to worship him rightly, and then walk after him rightly. That our worship of the preeminent one is not worship if we don't live like he is preeminent. It just becomes lip service. So we have to see our Christ and to see his glory. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that he would give me fresh eyes to behold his greatness, to see him. So that as 1 John reminds us that when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. You long for that? You long to see him? To be rid of this corrupted, sinful flesh? This broken weak faith to be renewed and to see his glory. You long to see him, his holiness, that we like Moses will probably have our faces to the ground. I don't know if we'll see him face to face. I'm going to see him like face to scalp. (laughs) But I long for that. And may we long for that day after day to see our Savior and be renewed in that. Father God, would you perfect us and renew us anew to not only know who you are in your son, but to be humbled by his glory, to be humbled by his greatness, and to walk after him. None of these things, God, we can do in ourselves, but it's a work that you do in us through your spirit. And so, Lord, as you call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, I pray we would work out by the fear of God knowing that it is you who's working in us to work and to will for your good pleasure. This is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.